Rachel. Uh, I was reading some early arcade appearances the other night. Oh, cool. Thank you, Chris. You are the best possible emergency backup co-host. I was wondering, Captain Britain, is he a mutant? No, he's just really rich. But his brother and sister are mutants. Yeah. And he has a ton of superpowers himself. Still not a mutant, though. Okay, so where do his powers come from? Merlin. Merlin? Merlin. Like from King Arthur, Merlin. Yeah, that one. So Brian Braddock crashed his bike while on the run from supervillains, because look, it's a comic, it happens. And while he was bleeding out on the side of the road, Merlin and his daughter Roma offered to make him the mystical champion of Britain. What? Hi, I'm Rachel Edditon. And I'm Chris Sims, filling in for Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time somebody did. Welcome to the 38th episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men. In this case, Rachel and Chris Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our very favorite superhero soap opera. So Chris, thank you so much again for coming back to Pinch It. Oh, it's my pleasure. Okay, so what we're actually going to talk about is something that way, way, way back when you were on the podcast for the first time, I promised you that we would hold off on until you could come back and talk about it with us. And that is the classic Marvel assassin arcade. Yes, Uh, who is... After Doctor Doom, probably my favorite Marvel villain. That is auspicious because one of the things we're going to talk about is a story where the two of them team up. Oh, they hang out together all the time. (laughs) They do, and it's fantastic. They're the best possible foils. If you go back and read the issues that we're going to talk about on this podcast all in a row like I did, and you don't read anything between them, it's just Arcade and Doctor Doom broing down. So what's his deal? Uh, Arcade is an assassin. I believe he's inspired by Scaramanga from The Man with the Golden Gun. And if you've seen that movie, Scaramanga is an assassin who charges a million dollars a kill. And the way that he kills you is that he lures you to his island where he has this weird little amusement park shooting gallery set up and he'll shoot you with his golden gun. Somehow that gets filtered through the lens of Chris Claremont and Bronze Age Marvel Comics and comes out as arcade. What our kids always reminded me of most and by far and away is just a D&D level designer. It's like playing a really deadly, really whimsical game of Hero Quest. See, I feel like Arcade, and I feel the same way about the Riddler. Like, if you're writing Batman, it is your job to come up with traps and crimes for Batman to solve, right? The person writing Batman literally has to come up with the clues. Yeah. The person who writes Batman is the Riddler. If you're writing the X-Men, you're Arcade, because you're trying to come up with new ways to kill the X-Men. Well, and like the Riddler, Arcade is perpetually hamstrung by his own gambit, lowercase gambit, in that his dedication to making Murder World work and to its rules pretty much inevitably means that the heroes get to go free. We mentioned that he first shows up in Marvel Team Up 65, and in that he kidnapped and fought Spider-Man and Captain Britain, and the Captain Britain rivalry in particular is going to go on for a really long time. In fact, I think Captain Britain's one of the few heroes he's ever tried to take out free of charge. Wow. Yeah, his first X-Men appearance is in X-Men 123, and I think it's not till a bit later that we find out his origin story, or at least his purported origin story, because he's given a couple, and none of them are ever really confirmed. But the one that comes up most is that he murdered his father, After being disowned on his 21st birthday, spent a while as a a high-level assassin and then decided his true passion was basically for what boiled down to really brutal platformer design. Right. He is an assassin who gets so good at killing that he gets bored. His first murder is of his father and he just rigs up a car bomb and blows him up. That's what we see in Uncanny X-Men number 124. And then he goes directly from there to being, oh, well, that was easy. I should make an amusement park. (laughs) And this is 616 Arcade, I should point out. Um, There is an Ultimate Arcade who is somewhat different and really just incredibly boring. Like, 616 Arcade is delightful and whimsical and, you know, homicidal, but but pretty entertaining about it. 
Ultimate Arcade is kind of an obsessive video game aficionado dude bro. I like Arcade because he wears a massive bow tie. Is that really all it takes? Yeah, I actually wrote a column about Arcade because somebody asked me why I liked Arcade so much when he's such an ineffective supervillain. And the thing about supervillains is they are meant to be ineffective. The Joker is never going to win. You know, <laughs> Dr. Doom's never actually going to kill the Fantastic Four. I, I'm sorry to pull the curtain back. The best thing that a supervillain can do is make the story entertaining. And as someone who really, really loves death traps and the idea of building these complicated completely improbable machinations to destroy your favorite superheroes. I think arcade is the literal version of that entire idea of the supervillain superhero struggle. There's a level where he doesn't really care if he wins. He certainly doesn't in these two stories. He he takes a job to kill the X-Men, but at the end of it, like he writes them a little cheery note. He's a kid <laughs> playing with his go. action figures. Yeah, that is exactly what he is. And I think he's really fun because of that. And of course, it's also uh, the fact that the story that's in Uncanny 123 and 124, which we're going to talk about, was my first X-Men story ever. Oh my God. What a jumping on yeah. point. It really explains a lot about why I like the comics that I like. I like silly villains. I like elaborate death traps. I like Cyclops talking about how he's not here to have fun. <laughs> Is he ever really here to have fun? Never. No, he's here to do cool ricochet stuff because that's that's what he does in Murder World. His innate talent for geometry. <laughs> Yes, which may or may not be a secondary mutation, depending on what year it is. So speaking of that, looking at the team right now, so we're going back a little bit. In X-Men 113 and 114, the X-Men got separated fighting Magneto in a volcano base in Antarctica, as one does. And right now, each half of the team thinks that the other half is dead. So right now, we're, we're following Cyclops, Wolverine, Nightcrawler, Storm, and Colossus. And as far as they know, Phoenix and Beast are buried under volcanic rubble and lava which is why the issue starts with Cyclops and Colleen Wing on a terrible date. Uh, not only that, but it starts off with Cyclops not only talking about Jean, but talking about how Jean is the only girl he's ever dated. <laughs> yeah, they're just walking down the street. Spider-Man pops in to have a chat, and then Cyclops is like, you're the only other girl I've ever dated besides Jean. Awkward. But it doesn't matter because it's going to be a terrible date anyway because it's X-Men, and you know what X-Men do on dates? They get kidnapped they by supervillains. Yeah. yeah. And in, in this case, by Arcade's assistant, this is Mr. Chamber, who has this great garbage truck with kind of a telescoping tube that comes out of it and just sort of vacuums up whoever it lands on. And that's also something that came up in the Spider-Man and X-Men Arcade's Revenge video game, which is a sequel to this story. It's a really, really terrible video game. That's unfortunate because you'd think an the, arcade uh, video game would be great. I mean, there's so much raw potential there. There is one thing that I wanted to mention about this particular issue. I was reading it next to my girlfriend earlier, and I read her Spider-Man's dialogue from the opening page. Because we are promised a Spider-Man guest starring role on the cover. And Spider-Man appears on, I think, a total of five pages of the comic, not actually doing anything. He but, shows uh, up, talks about Arcade briefly, feels vaguely bad that Cyclops and, and Colleen Wing got kidnapped. And makes a phone call and then completely destroys a phone booth. <laughs> yeah, man, that panel of him just exploding out of the phone booth is fantastic. The internal monologue that Spider-Man has on this splash page is all about how he's uh, mad because he's about to go on a date, but he paid his taxes. And now he doesn't have any money because the government's picking his pocket. And I'm kind of wondering if that was Claremont riffing on noted objectivist Steve Ditko's creation. Yeah, that definitely sounds more like the question. A man is entitled to the sweat of his brow, says <laughs> Spider-Man. 
<laughs> so where, where do you think Arcade falls on that political spectrum? He is explicitly in demand of the free market. But on the other hand, he runs an unbelievably inefficient operation. I mean, the costs of developing his robots and all of the facilities, if he charges a million dollars for a murder, he's losing money every time. Well, you have to assume that he's got like 16 people every month. Like He's taking whatever murder contracts he can get for that million dollars. That's the thing I love about it. It's not only is there an abandoned amusement park later in this story that Arcade ostensibly owns and has kind of retrofitted as part of Murder World. Okay, to be fair, every supervillain owns an abandoned amusement park. That's that's yeah, like a volcano basis. The abandoned basis, amusement park isn't actually part of Murder World. It's just the exit. That's He's the thing. Delightful. Arcade is all about style over substance. He had a very specific dream and he went and executed it. Oh, pun not intended, but I'm, I'm kind of proud of it in retrospect. And he is just living his weird personal dream. Now, you and Miles have talked about the tendency to get a little introduction for the X-Men, usually in the danger room at the start of each arc. In this one, we also get a nice little introduction to the X-Men to kick off this story. But instead of being the X-Men doing X-Men business, it's the X-Men on dates. Everybody's out having a social life. So here's what the X-Men do when they're not being X-Men. Cyclops goes on dates and talks about his dead ex-girlfriend. Nightcrawler and Colossus go to the opera. The X-Men are pretty much always, when they go out, they're always going to either the opera or the ballet. Wolverine hangs out at the Japanese consulate with Mariko. Uh, Wearing a cowboy hat. I love Wolverine's cowboy hat. I like that when Wolverine is dating his traditional Japanese girlfriend, he very specifically dresses up like an American stereotype. He dresses up like on the Rockford Files when Jim Rockford dresses like an oil man to run a scam. Yeah. He's got a a bolo tie and a cowboy hat and a tan suit. He's got a cow skull bolo tie. Storm, since this is in the mid-70s Claremont Burn run, is showering (laughs) naked. That's what she does when she's not being an X-Man. And she appears to actually be showering in the bathroom this time, which is a rarity for Storm. Usually it's just randomly in a hall somewhere. When she gets shot with the, I guess, tranquilizer or stun, stun phaser, whatever it is, there are hella nipples. Hella nipples. Super nipples. And like I said, this was a middle school book fair purchase for me. So no wonder I grew up loving comics. So the X-Men get kidnapped from their dates, as X-Men do, and they wake up in giant pinballs, giant, specifically Lucite. Cyclops specifies. Cyclops makes sure to go, these are Lucite spheres. (laughs) (laughs) The details are important. Now, they're also all in costume, which means that Arcade, or uh, possibly Mr. Chamber or Ms. Locke, stripped and dressed the X-Men, including putting Cyclops' visor on, which I guess is easy when he's unconscious because his eyes are closed. I would think, yeah. And it's attached to his hood, I think. There's a bit much later on when he and Madeline are on their honeymoon and to have the visor on, he has to have the whole hood on. Oh boy. (laughs) It's not actually sexy. They're fighting sharks. Uh, What's not sexy about fighting sharks? So anyway... They're, not only that, but it also means that Arcade knows all of their civilian identities. He's been able to track them all down. And he actually, I mean, he, he got Storm and Banshee straight out of the X-Mansion. He goes into the X-Mansion and just shoots two people. Which, if it's that easy, like why, why hasn't that happened more often? Well, because again, Arcade is kind of a savant assassin, apparently. And this backs that up. I've never actually thought about it that way. But I guess you're right. Like That is kind of our first glimpse at him being so good at being able to kill people that he can just walk into the X-Mansion wearing a pristine white suit and a bow tie and just take out two X-Men while offering slightly racist mid-fight dialogue. And then stick around for long enough to answer the phone once and be shitty to Spider-Man. Who's going to pay for that? Who's going to pay for that phone for this fight? Not Peter Parker. 
he's figuring that at least this way he'll have some say in where his tax dollars go. <laughs> Private Enterprise should be building that phone booth. X-Men 123, in which Spider-Man briefly flirts with objectivism. So the X-Men are in the giant pinball machine. I mean, they're literally just getting knocked around a pinball machine for a while. The X-Men are in the pinball machine and are then taken from the, what is it, six slots in the pinball machine to their assigned death traps. Right. Were these death traps built for the individual X-Men that end up in them? Or was it just a random draw of death traps? Some of them could go in any direction. Cyclops is just generic. Nightcrawlers is generic. Colossus is amazing. And it's actually the only one I really particularly want to talk about because the rest are pretty generic death traps. We should actually talk a little bit about Murder World and how it works maybe at this point. Murder World is, is Arcade's whimsical death trap funhouse. The logistics of it are baffling. It's got to be enormous based on what it is and based on the amount of movement they do through it. And the fact everything exists in physical space. Later on, he'll eventually use hard light holograms, but he's like Doom. He's really old school analog. So most of it's, you know, robots and fancy paint. Yeah, except that he has a hall of mirrors that builds uh, what he calls instant androids, where each mirror can produce uh, an exaggerated robot duplicate of whoever walks in front of it that are then instantly rebuilt as soon as one gets destroyed. It's as close to being a Silver Age DC comic as I think Bronze Age Marvel ever gets. I mean, it's, you know, I talked about the elaborate death traps kind of coming from uh, James Bond, but just the idea of the elaborate superhero death trap, that's a Silver Age DC idea. And that's kind of specifically a Silver Age Batman idea. Uh, Superman's always in weird situations, but it's Batman who has to contend with these, you know, weird Rube Goldberg devices, often in fun houses and carnivals. That makes a lot of sense because, well, first of all, his arch nemesis is a clown. But the other thing is that Batman is he's a thinking hero. His powers are basically the world's greatest detective thing, giving him things that he has to think and reason his way out of. It's you know, how you challenge Batman. And with the X-Men, I was thinking about that and how it fit with them. And the conclusion I came to is that Murder World for the X-Men works like the Danger Room, which is that it's almost always a classic switching dance partners team fight. Yeah. In the second arcade story that we're going to talk about, it is explicitly referred to as being like the Danger Room quite a bit, mostly because in that story, Arcade and Doctor Doom are specifically testing the X-Men. For what reason? I do not know. Yeah, Their ways are mysterious. I actually sort of assume that their dubious friendship is entirely Arcade seeing how much he can fuck with Doctor Doom and Doom being really smug about the fact that he's onto this but doesn't let Arcade know. Neither of them will admit that they just actually like hanging out. Murder World is run by Arcade, but he doesn't run it alone. He runs it with two assistants at this point, Miss Locke and Mr. Chambers. And I keep thinking those names are a reference to something, but I can't figure out what and Google has not been forthcoming. So, Oh, it's parts of a gun. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yes. That's it. So he runs Murder World as an assassination chamber. He also rents it out to supervillains who want to train against really good facsimiles of the heroes they're going to fight because he has a huge, huge collection of of replica superhero and supervillain and random associates of superheroes and supervillains robots. He's got like a really good, perfect six, you know, Colossus's six-year-old little sister robot. You know, the depth of research he must do and the amount of time he must spend on this is kind of mind-blowing. I feel like he just hacks into the action figure database that they have in the Marvel Universe. Because I feel like in the Marvel Universe, they probably do have Marvel Legends action figures. And so he just builds full-size robots out of those. Yeah, but how does he get, like, their friends and families? Uh, He's got the official handbook. 
he's he's just an early revolutionary of 3D printing. Well, you know how John Byrne shows up in Fantastic Four as the artist of the Fantastic Four comic book. Yeah, but that's really only ever a conceit in Fantastic Four, as far as I know. But how do you I think guess John Captain Byrne America got the too. job drawing Fantastic Four? Obviously, he was drawing X-Men before that. <laughs> so many layers, man. I would love to see arcades meeting with, with John Byrne. In fact, I think there, there's a distinct possibility that the John Byrne we have right now has been a robot since about 1993. It would definitely go a fairly long way to explaining the hidden years. So Arcade always feels like a really weird stylistic jump in a comic. And I was trying to think of whether there was a book that he really made sense into me. And all I could think of was Excalibur. I See, I'm not an Excalibur guy. I've never really read Excalibur, so I don't know that story. He's in Excalibur a bunch because he's got a huge hate on for Captain Britain. But Excalibur is the weird, silly book. It's the book where they cross time caper and the, the whimsical fairy tale versions of themselves who occasionally show up and are supervillains. And, you know, the really just amazing, goofy. I can't, God, I can't believe you haven't read much Excalibur because I feel like the Alan Davis covers should be enough to just pull you in because they're so goofy and so classic, like word balloon scenario covers. Oh, I bought a run of it when okay. I was working at the comic book store. I, I put together a run and bought it. I just never read it. <laughs> The later stuff is hit and miss. Ellis is either really good or really bad. I'm not fond of anything that comes after him. But uh, Claremont and Davis's runs are really, really fun. And they're just ridiculous. All the reasons that you like Arcade are reasons that you will like Excalibur if you read it. I have some favorite Arcade stories, but we should probably wait till later to talk about them. Because we have not even explained the death traps in this first. Story All right, yet. so I feel like I feel like most of the death traps are pretty boring, and they're so like Cyclops is trapped right. in a room with three exit doors. Arcade says, you know, one leads out, the other two lead to certain doom. Yeah, um, each one opens on a concrete wall, and as soon as one opens, the moving wall that is advancing on him will just slam him into the concrete and kill him. Uh, Wolverine's in a weird hall of mirrors that makes android replicas. Nightcrawler is on a a bumper car track. Uh, Storm is basically yeah. on the dueling platform from the Flash Gordon movie. Banshee is trapped in a uh, holodeck where he is being strafed by Nazi planes. Yeah, and then we have Colossus, and Colossus has by far and away the best setup. Colossus is stuck in a room with just a single flimsy wooden chair, and he is approached by uh, Colonel Alexei Vajan of the KGB. And this is this is actually a recurring dude in, in Marvel. I'm not sure if this is his first appearance, but he's been around before and he'll come back again. What Vajan does over the next issue and a half is convince Colossus that he's been a Soviet sleeper agent. And because Colossus has doubts about being an X-Man and because Alexei Vajin is the Soviet equivalent of Nick Fury, a national hero of that level, uh, he immediately decides to turn on his friends. <laughs> And he ends and up, the Margaret. next time we see him, he's bursting in on, on Cyclops and Wolverine, who by now are in the same room. I think Cyclops has, has broken through the ceiling or floor of his, his room and found Wolverine in his Hall of Mirrors. And Colossus bursts in as the proletarian. He's even got a sort of Dark Phoenix-style intro line. No longer am I the X-Man Colossus, a traitor to his motherland and people. Now I am the proletarian, worker's hero of the Soviet Union. And he's wearing a cap and boots and a pair of overalls with no shirt and on the overalls. The GSSR Cyrillic acronym, Hammer and Sickle and a Portrait of Lenin. To be fair, it is no more or less over the top than uh, Captain America having eagle wings and a giant A on his head. No, he had to have like a picture of Washington crossing the Delaware on his chest or something. I mean, look, that would be a great design. We should probably get in touch with somebody about that. Oh God, do you think anyone's ever cosplayed the proletarian? Uh, unfortunately, I am not finding anything, I'm afraid. 
All right, which means it's unclaimed. You can be the first proletarian cosplayer. You. So in the next issue, in, in 124, we discover that Arcade also has a set of hostages uh, neatly gift-wrapped in his control panel. What the hell is up with that? I keep on seeing it. Like, Joker does it in Christmas with the Joker in the Batman animated That's series, That's exactly too. what I was thinking. Is is this, it looks... Do other supervillains do this? I don't think anyone does it to this extreme. Like, they look like Hershey's Kisses with heads sticking out of the top. I am amazed that uh, Claremont and Byrne put three of the X-Men's girlfriends in bondage, and it is just shapeless trapezoids with bows on it. It's so weird, and I they're kind of cups. love it. Putting cups. They're putting cups. They're, they're little flans. <laughs> they are. They, they look like little flans, little blanc -blanches. So this time Arcade has been hired by two much older X-Men villains, and those are Black Tom Cassidy and Kane Marco, the juggernaut. And they just appear in that brief cameo, and I don't think they actually come back at all in the story because it's really just arcade i mean someone has always hired arcade but it's always just kind of a courtesy when they let us know who because we're really not there for the client we're there for arcade so they get out safely and an arcade parachutes down the conveniently gift-wrapped girlfriends and nightcrawler who at this point has made it into the control room gotten captured and and subsequently gift-wrapped rather than killed which seems kind of strange and he leaves them a note on what appears to be Archie Comics stationery. <laughs> Slightly different font. The Archie A would be in uh, in Cooper, of course. Yeah, the this a, is a more elaborate. It's a. a really, it's really close though. It is. It is. So that's the X Men's intro to Arcade. Um, X Men one twenty three and one twenty four. And his next appearance in the X Men is inestimably better, mostly because it involves Doctor Doom. Obviously. Clearly and always. So this is X-Men 146 and 147. Can we talk about how Dr. Doom starts this story by building a real doll of Storm? Yep, we sure can. Now, there is a long running element of the X-Men storylines. There's three or four in a row. Uh, and I think I talked about this on the last time I was on Explain the X-Men. There's like three or four stories in a row that end simply because the villain is really attracted to Storm and decides that he is just going to stop doing whatever he's doing. It happens with Dracula. It happens with Magneto. It happens with Doctor Doom. Not only does it happen with all of those guys, it happens so much that Claremont has actually made fun of it later on in his X-Men. Right. So at this point, Doctor Doom has built a robot Storm that follows his every command because Doctor Doom is above such things as gender politics. Dr. Doom is above a lot of things. You know, he's got a castle on a mountain. A castle on a mountain in upstate New York. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and the Greys get kidnapped again in this. Of course they did. Why wouldn't they? I... So Arcade has teamed up with Dr. Doom. He has led the X-Men to Dr. Doom's castle where they have attacked, causing Dr. Doom to decide to imprison and kill them, but not before learning as much as he can by letting Arcade put them in his weird version of murder world that exists in Dr. Doom's basement. I want to go back really quickly and just give a little bit of, of reference. This is X-Men 146 and 147. So it's happening after the Dark Phoenix saga. Cyclops is no longer with the team. The B-plot in the story is him and Lee Forrest are getting shipwrecked. Let's see, the Brood Saga hasn't happened yet. So this is the current team, Angel, Wolverine, Nightcrawler, Colossus, and Storm, right? Right. And Shadowcat is not around for some reason. And meanwhile, with 
some of the X-Men captured, Professor X goes and, and basically conscripts his B-team, which is Havoc and Polaris and Banshee. And Iceman. Right, Iceman is in college. Who um, complains about not being in college for the whole time that he's in this story. Uh, there's yeah, a part and, where Iceman is about to die, and he says, well, there goes my tuition money down the drain. <laughs> well, none of them want to be there. I love that. Like, it's the team of X-Men who really specifically don't want to be X-Men at this point. Oh my god, not only does Doctor Doom have a castle in the Adirondacks, but it's the castle that Toad turned into an amusement park. That's a weird building. Called Toad World. Oh, I don't know about Toad World. The comic does specify that despite its remoteness, Toad World was a great success. <laughs> I mean, this is this is a caption. You, you can't argue with this. This is word of God. So, <laughs> God, I love Doctor Doom. Doctor Doom is so great. Oh, and Miles isn't here to do Doom voices. But Doom shows up. The X-Men demand Arcade alive and unhurt because Arcade has, you know, kidnapped their buds and says, you know, come rescue me or everyone, everyone gets killed. Doom is absolutely uninterested in this deal. He sends guys in battle suits after them, which is sort of depressing because I feel like everyone should be Doom bots. I want everyone to be Doom bots. Me too. I will say that this time around, the traps are a little more clever. We've got Nightcrawler trapped in a featureless cube, just a blank white room. And since he has no idea where he is, he can't just teleport out of it. Colossus is on a weird room that is full of a raging whirlpool and a spire of rock. Uh, The whirlpool is steadily chipping away at the rock, which is crumbling underneath him. And as the rocks fall below the surface, there are laser guns that destroy uh, anything about the size of Colossus. Doom has specifically set these up to test and assess the X-Men. He's not trying to kill them, but he is trying to challenge them. I have never met the X-Men before. Their powers are new to me. I wish to examine them, learn their strengths, their weaknesses, how they fight and think. I can't, uh, this I can't is, do the Doom voice. I, this is going to be such a pale imitation. Wolverine is trapped in a weird optical illusion room where he can't tell where the walls are. But whenever he hits one, uh, there is a magnetic field that sends him bouncing around. There's also anti-gravity in the room, you know, because. Uh, and anytime he moves, there's uh, I, it's not really clear what exactly it is, but it's this a weird psychedelic thing that light show, he says. These flaming op art walls are scrambling my senses. <laughs> If I had a dollar for every time I'd said that. And Angel uh, is put in the only kind of trap anyone ever puts Angel in. A dodging shit in the air scenario. Now, the most interesting trap, uh, and the most horrifying, I think, is Storms. But Doctor Doom doesn't think he's trapped Storm. He has transmuted her into organic chrome, uh, essentially doing, you know, giving her a artificial version of Colossus's powers. Except that she's still awake inside the solid metal body. And really he's scary. parading around his creepy Storm robot in front of Chrome Storm, which is just extra weird and unpleasant. Yeah, except for Storm can't move or see or breathe, but she's conscious. And Doctor Doom doesn't seem to know that. So Storm starts using her powers from within this body that she can't move, and everything quickly gets completely out of control. She creates this massive hurricane that covers the entirety of the eastern uh, seaboard, down to where Cyclops and uh, Lee are trapped on the island. They actually get struck by lightning as a result of this giant storm storm is created. Meanwhile, yeah. the emergency backup X-Men are doing their best to find and break into wait, 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 wait. Are you saying they are the equivalent of me? <laughs> no, you're way better than they are. The, the emergency I'm the emergency backup co-host. If these are the emergency backup X-Men, I want a new title. <laughs> 
All right. This is during the era when, where I'm perpetually sad every time someone draws Havoc using his powers that they're not Neil Adams. But Cockrum does a pretty good job. And all they really know about Arcade's headquarters is where the X-Men got ejected from them last time, which is the old abandoned amusement park. Right. So they go there. And I actually think this is really clever, too. Polaris uses her magnetic powers, which are only slightly less vague than Magneto's, mm-hmm. to sort of trace the uh, electromagnetic fields of all of Arcade's electronics from the abandoned amusement park to the actual murder world, which is not too terribly far away, but underground and a good bit away underneath a landfill. So who has Miss Locke assembled as her hostages? The Greys, uh, Moira McTaggart... Stevie Hunter. Stevie Hunter. Eliana Rasputin. I do like that uh, Mr. and Mrs. Gray are in the same little present box <laughs> I trapezoid. I guess because they're a hostage unit. <laughs> they, are, they are one unit of hostage. Exactly. These guys all get through Murder World, and I'm kind of unclear on, on why they even end up in Murder World. Well, they're looking for the X-Men, and I actually really like this, because they're looking for the X-Men, and they know that Arcade has done something. They don't know that Arcade has lured them to Doctor Doom's castle in the Adirondacks, because why would you know that? But Miss Locke has all the hostages. Right. Miss Locke has the hostages and she's running Murder World. So the X-Men B team end up in Murder World. So you have two separate Murder Worlds for two separate teams with two separate sets of stakes. You've got Doom's Murder World and Arcade's Murder World both going at the same time, which I think is really fun. And this leads to, in in Arcade's Murder World, uh, my very favorite panel from this issue, which is a tiny six-year-old Ileana Rasputin robot uh, pulling out a gun and yelling, eat hot lead, sucker. It's pretty amazing. I want to go back to Arcade and Doom because I feel like that's kind of the heart of this. Yeah, Arcade keeps cracking wise at the expense of Dr. Doom. He calls him Vic. Uh, He talks about how he can't beat the Fantastic Four. And he's really needling him. And Dr. Doom uh, responds by telling him, Oh, as long as you're amusing me, I'm going to keep you alive. And that seems to be kind of offensive to Arcade. So Arcade says, I'm not a court jester. I'm an assassin. And Dr. Doom's amazing response is, you're whatever I say you are, which is kind of the (laughs) mic drop of the conversation. At the end of the day, Arcade is alive because Dr. Doom has decided not to kill him. Yeah. This issue also has two Claremont classic uh, named random thugs who are are Phil and Tobe who are working for Dr. Doom. It's so weird. I took note of that when I was reading it, just that his name is Tobe. Yep. I assume it's short for Toby. I assume they're just just on very close terms. I was It's T-O-B-E, and I wasn't sure yeah. if that was Tobe, short for Toby, or if that's an alternate spelling of Toby. And if it was an alternate spelling, why he didn't just go with the much more common spelling. But who are we to fathom the mind? Of yeah, Chris I Claremont? think only, only Phil and Tobe know for sure. So the X-Men finally get out of the death traps. And these are actually pretty clever. Uh, the other ones in the original story were all said to have... Uh, ways that the X-Men could get out of them, but we don't really see them. We see uh, Cyclops in one of my defining moments for Cyclops. He goes, we've been playing by Arcade's rules and getting creamed. It's time to do something else. (laughs) Changing the game because he does not like the rules, which is a pretty badass thing for Cyclops to do. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm I'm surprised that you think of that as a definitive Cyclops moment. Well, it is, because I, I, I like that about him. Well, I think it is, too. But I we also established time before last that you were on that we have, have very different definitive versions. Except for all of our favorite Cyclops moments are the exact same. Right. We and just weigh them differently. That is one of them. The other thing, well, again, Doom's death traps aren't there to kill the X-Men. They're there to test them. So they do each have a solution. It's just a solution that's usually pretty counterintuitive. So, for example, Colossus 
realizes that the lasers are targeting only debris over a certain size, and he can survive if he changes out of his steel form, which is, is significantly larger than his default human form. And Nightcrawler has to teleport two miles straight up because he realizes that no matter what kind of structure he's in, it's not going to be that high. And so then he sort of has to ride the air currents down until he gets to an updraft because if he teleports, he always ends up with the same velocity. So he ends up waiting till he gets an updraft that will break his fall and then teleports down to 10 feet above the surface of the ocean. So they eventually all get out and it's... One of the most profoundly anticlimactic endings ever, because Storm nearly destroys the world. She basically has her own Dark Phoenix moment. Yeah, to the point where her hair is lightning. She finally gets turned back from the organic chrome, and uh, she is totally Dark Phoenixing out. Well, I mean, she yells uh, things like, I am power. She's got the Dark Phoenix balloon borders and everything. She's got Kirby Crackle coming out of her eyes. It's really awesome. It is, uh, but she kind of comes back to her senses and realizes that she's going to destroy the world and then takes out the storm and everything ends up okay. Here's the part of the story that bugs me. That Dr. Doom apologizes and Storm is just like, yeah, no, we're cool. It's not even that Dr. Doom apologizes because I'll buy that he doesn't realize what he's doing and that he didn't actually want to hurt Storm. Yeah. But that she doesn't go, well, hey, this was my greatest fear and you essentially tortured me for several hours. You know, I'm pretty mad about that. She just goes, eh. Well, we're not friends. We're not enemies. What happens next is on to you, buddy. It's like a weird, it's the end of their first date. Yeah, it's it's definitely like slipping him a matchbook with her phone number. It's, you know, I'm, I'm going to chalk this one up to the irresistibility of Dr. Doom. So we've got one more story we're going to look at today, and we should probably try to blaze through it pretty fast because we are running over. Well, there's not a whole lot to talk about with this story. There to be is honest. not. This this is though. This is the first um, Kitty Pride and Murder World story. This is the Uncanny X Men number one hundred ninety seven. This is a little further than Miles and I have gotten. Ha ha ha! God, it's coming out of Secret Wars too. <laughs> have fun with that. That would explain why I've never read this one before. No, I am going to. I am going to, to share with you the only thing that matters from Secret Wars, or even remotely relevant to Secret Wars in this issue, which is that Magneto is currently living at the X-Mansion with the X-Men. The end. That's it. Um, It ties in a lot more to the two preceding issues, the Beyonders all over the place, but this one is just good old fun with Arcade. Except maybe it's the reprint I have, but the version I was reading felt like it missed a lot of pages. Like, there's segments of this issue that have really bad transitions to each other, which is not something Claremont usually does. Maybe they were doing it Marvel style, and this is still pretty early in John Romita Jr.'s career, but it feels very choppy and very compressed. It's a single-issue story that feels like it could have easily been, too. And there's a lot going on in the background of it, too. So there's Nimrod, the future Sentinel, running around New York making friends. The relevant part, the part that we're looking at, is that uh, Shadowcat and Colossus, who are now on on nebulously friendly terms following some uh, campfire group therapy. Oh, God, the X-Men. Um... Basically, here is what happens. Arcade comes to Colossus and Kitty Pride and says, hey, Dr. Doom's trying to kill me for obvious reasons. Well, he, he kidnaps them and then tells them that. <laughs> uh, I need some help. Uh, and if Colossus you don't help Kitty me, Pride. I'll murder everyone you love. Yeah, there is that. He, does, he doesn't actually have hostages on deck this time. He's just got sort of a general threat. A, a, if Dr. Doom takes me out, I will make sure that everyone you love dies in the exact same way that I did. And then... He get, says, oh, by the way, I also have this room full of X-Men robots, so use those for whatever. You know, cannon fodder, chess pieces, personal gratification. Do you think Arcade actually like rents out his, his theme park for creepy sex parties? 
So anyway, Kitty Pride and Colossus have a weird fight with a bunch of weird stuff, including a Doctor Doom train, which I think is actually really awesome. It is. It's fantastic. It looks like some kind of dinosaur insect thing. It, it looks like a level boss in a platformer, basically. It really does. Like, it, it should be snaking a, around. You should have to jump over parts of it and attack different parts of it. And, you know, different sections of it will fall off at different times. It's a big, weird transformer. That's sort of my answer to could Doctor Doom be more awesome? And I guess if he could turn into a truck. <laughs> it's the one thing he hasn't done yet. Or has he? You never know. Uh, it can just be a truck the, sitting there narrating itself. At one point, Kitty Pride dies. But it's actually just the robot Kitty Pride, and the real Kitty Pride shorts out Doctor Doom's armor, and it turns out that it wasn't actually Doctor Doom. It's it never actually Doctor Doom. It's always something else. Yeah, in this case, it is Miss Locke, Arcade's assistant, in a Doctor Doom costume. And what we learn is that every year, as a birthday present to him, Miss Locke spends Arcade's birthday trying to murder him. It's a free pass to try and murder him, and if she wins, she gets all of Arcade's stuff. Uh, including his vast fortune and presumably his assassination business. And like 700 X-Men robots. So Arcade is going to keep coming back pretty regularly through X-Books, through the rest of the Marvel Universe, and he's going to figure really prominently into a 2012 story called Avengers Arena. This is part of Marvel now. It's written by Dennis Hopeless, who we've mentioned before, I think mostly as the writer of the really superlative X-Men season one. And it's basically a drop a bunch of teenagers on a hostile island and force them all to fight to the death story. Uh, directly and explicitly in the tradition of Lord of the Flies, The Hunger Games, um, Battle Royale, to the point that, although he never specifies which, um, Arcade mentions that he's based this concept on a book. He specifically talks about basing it on young adult fiction, which I think is hilarious. Yes, uh, a book that, that he read in prison, um, and his, his new assistant, Miss Coriander, gets him a copy of it, I think, for his birthday. And then he tries to kill her, and she teleports away because she's really badass. God, I really want her to come back as a major supervillain. But anyway, he decides that, yeah, he has in fact been a super, super ineffective assassin. And we learned that all of the other supervillains make fun of him, which, to be fair, they probably would. And so he's decided that the problem is that he's been trying to kill everyone in Murder World. And the thing to do is to get a bunch of super kids there and try to get them to kill each other. Although Arcade's at the center of it, it's really not an Arcade story in any of the ways that we talked about before. And what it reminds me the most of ultimately is actually the Rick Fetch comic Brat Pack in terms of the long-term implications of it and in terms of the fact that it's basically an ongoing commentary on, you know, the, the savagery of humanity in, in the vein of, of any of those novels we mentioned, but also specifically of the relative inhumanity of setting up teenagers as superheroes. Now, this actually spins out of one of my favorite arcade stories, uh, which ran through the Young Allies and Spider-Girl annuals that Paul Tobin wrote, which is the first time that Arcade kind of decides that he's going to focus on teen superheroes uh, as a way of getting some easy kills back. And that story is really, really good and involves Arcade not using Murder World, but rather turning New York itself into Murder World. So, uh, so this is the Home Alone up- 2 to the standard Arcade stories Home Alone 1. Exactly. So that actually leads pretty conveniently into listener questions, of which I have two today. And the first one is from Nimby Esquire on Twitter, who asks, in fact, which is the greatest non-X-Men arcade story? I will leave that to you since I have actually not read any non-X-Men arcade stories unless you count other X-teams. Well, I really like uh, the Spider-Girl and Young Allies story. Those were both really underrated series that uh, really deserved better, I thought. 
Unfortunately, they didn't last too long. But beyond that, there's another really good superhero book that didn't last too long, and that is the eight-issue The Thing series by Dan Slott and Andre DeVito. There's an issue where The Thing, uh, his girlfriend at the time, uh, Tony Stark, and The Constrictor, along with a bunch of other partygoers, get kidnapped and brought to Murder Island, Arcade's latest project. Does Ricardo Montalban take them there? No, but there is a tiny little arcade robot that is about the size of Tattoo. Aww. The idea is that they have to get across the island to a, I think it's like a 20 by 20 square with a big X marking it. And anyone who is not on that square by sundown is going to get killed. So you have the thing and Iron Man and the constrictor who has recently reformed teaming up to fight arcade on his giant new murder world. And uh, like we said, with the action figure esque robots, there's a part where a bunch of thing robots and a bunch of Hulk robots from different eras show up uh, in a miniature version of New York city. And so you have like pirate Blackbeard thing from fantastic four, number four fighting the maestro. This to me is why arcade is fundamentally an Excalibur villain, because that is such an Excalibur setup. I mean, Excalibur is all about the multiverse and like 200 captain Britons yelling at each other. Uh, it's a really, really fun story, and the paperback is unfortunately out of print, but if you can track it down, it is well worth picking up. That's a really great series. So our second question is from Sharkskin on Tumblr, who has some questions about the end of Sixus. Is, is that, wait, is that Sharkskin as in the skin of a shark, or that is that like, I identify as a shark, and therefore I am Sharkskin? It's it's spelled S-H-A-R-X-K-I-N, so it is ambiguous, and I, I did not try it further. It is a versatile username. Sharkskin has a number of questions about the end of Sixus crossover event, and I'm, I'm totally taking advantage of the fact that Miles is not here to spoil something really recent. So, <laughs> fair warning, um, because Miles is, is very careful about that, and I am a jerk. So if you are concerned about keeping your ears pristine and not learning how dubious crossover event Sixus wrapped up this week, you may want to hum loudly for the next 20 or 30 seconds. So basically what happened is that Inversion got reversed, but uh, evil Tony Stark decided he was going to have none of that and threw up a brief shield um, in which, among other characters, he, Havoc, both evil at the time and Sabretooth, good at the time, were all enclosed. Those aversions have persisted. So yes, Havoc is in fact still evil. I assume that this is just going to be covered massively, and I can't imagine... This is going to sound so mean. I have trouble imagining anyone caring enough about Axis to be concerned about about spoiling the end of it. Ouch. I mean, it's the concept of inversion is fun to play in as an event. It hasn't been well executed and it hasn't been they haven't made it interesting, which is is a shame because there are a lot of ingredients there that should be. Now, did we also not get asked about uh, arcade and video games? We did. Has Arcade been in more video games? Why hasn't he been in more? And I would echo the second one because, yeah, he seems like such an obvious choice. Why would you not have a Murder World platformer? There is a really, really good moment in uh, the Marvel Ultimate Alliance game. Uh, did you ever play that one? Um, the Marvel games that I have played are the old X-Men side-scrolling beat-em-up, the very new X-Men iOS little tiny one the days of future past one and the also free ios marvel contest of champions which is a button jammy fighting game oh oh and lego marvel heroes that is my marvel video game frame of reference uh there was a video game called x-men legends and they did two of those and they were pretty fun because you got to control four x-men at one time and they all had different powers and you would do stuff like oh here's a flashback to the weapon x program oh we're in the sewers looking for the morlocks they were very kind of gauntlety 
but they were successful. And so the third and fourth ones were Marvel Ultimate Alliance and Marvel Ultimate Alliance 2, where they expanded it out to a bunch of different Marvel characters. Uh, the second one is terrible. It is one of the worst video games I've ever played, a huge disappointment. But the first one I thought was really fun. And the idea behind it was that uh, Dr. Doom had basically gotten the power cosmic. And so you had to go around the Marvel Universe stopping Dr. Doom. At one point, you go to Dr. Doom's castle and you're like, okay, we're going in for the final confrontation. Is it his castle in Liberia so, or his castle in upstate New York? As it turns out, it's neither. Ooh. As you go through the castle, and the thing is you could like attack the scenery and so you could like bust down the walls until you got to the concrete or whatever. Mm. And if you bust down the, the stone columns at Castle Doom, you eventually get like these weird candy cane striped things. And oh. then you realize that you haven't teleported to Dr. Doom's castle. You've teleported to Murder World, and it's been set up to look like Dr. Doom's castle. <laughs> uh, and it's a really, really fun twist on uh, that part of the video game. You can actually recruit Blade in there by getting him out of a crane game, a giant life-size crane game. I'm so into this. That sounds fantastic. It was really, really fun. Arcade and Doom have such a good dynamic and they make such good foils to each other because they both they're both really, really into the performance aspect of supervillainy. They both prioritize, you know, style and they both play by very strict rules. What do you think they do in their downtime? Do they have downtime? I assume Dr. Doom has no downtime. He has Doom time. Maybe they do something really aggressively normal. Maybe they have a knitting circle. Is that, is that really aggressively normal? I live in Portland. Everyone, every, every household has an average of like 2.5 knitting circles, a ukulele and a podcast. <laughs> fair enough rachel fair enough all right so that is all we have time for today rachel and miles explain the x-men is as i just mentioned recorded in portland oregon it is produced by bobby roberts the producer of the geek remix trilogy of pop culture mashup albums and co-host of the star wars podcast full of sith new episodes come out every sunday on itunes stitcher and our website rachelandmiles.com Thank you again so much to Chris Sims, our emergency backup co-host, who is with me again today. You can hear Chris on a couple previous episodes as well, which I will link to in the as mentioned. When you are not filling in on Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, Chris, what are you up to these days? Oh, gee, I have a ton of podcasts. Uh, I am the co-host of War Rocket Ajax with Matt Wilson. I am the co-host of Movie Fighters with Matt Wilson. And I am the co-host of Sailor Business, an episode-by-episode Sailor Moon podcast alongside Jordan D. White. Uh, you can also find me every day at comicsalliance.com where I'm the senior writer and I'm on Twitter at the ISB. So Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men is as always entirely listener supported. It's made possible by our generous Patreon um, subscribers. Thanks you guys. If you'd like to join them, you can check out the link at the top of our website. Next week, Miles will be back in the studio and we will be back with more new mutants as well as uh, teen runaway superheroes, cloak and dagger. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,